0: Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah.
1: Live from the Hot Springs Resort in Bozeman, Montana, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are in the content. Phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. And give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your insight questions or business insight questions. Let us have Kit, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah July. Good evening to you all. Happy to be here with you live from Bozeman, Montana, the Bozeman's Hot Spring Resort in uh, Bozeman, Montana. Here with uh, Mr. Chris Fisher, he is uh, out at the pool, hanging out with his kids and his family, and I am slaving away here at the microphone, on vacation, but never disconnected from the Linux community and technology community. Thanks so much for being here with us. Episode 17, guys, of the Ask Noah Show, and a huge thank you to everyone who is out there supporting us. Of course, thank you very much to Chris Fisher, owner and operator of Jupiter Broadcasting, for throwing his weight and support behind the program, and of course, the EQQ Logos Radio, our home in Grand Forks, North Dakota, the radio station, for keeping us on the air. And thanks to our call or our crew, Sarah, who screens your calls. Again, my wife, giving up her family vacation to come screen calls for us. Ben, back at the studio, keeping us going strong. Thank you very much. And Rakai, our video editor, who takes this mess of a show, adds some video elements, and puts out a show for you guys to consume. And, you know, we couldn't do this show without you, the audience. So thank you, guys. Everyone who is a part of the audience, everyone who is a part of the show, thank you. Those of uh, uh, those of you in the Telegram group, telegram.asknoahshow.com, and our Reddit asknoahshow.reddit.com, and uh, and of course those of you who frequent the Ask Noah dashboard. You can do that at asknoahshow.com. The biggest thank you, though, really, of the whole community is reserved for those of us. Who patiently wait on hold? Those of us, those of you who patiently wait on hold, who put up with shorter than normal conversations, all to make this show possible. It's kind of funny. I, I, I go back and I read the chat logs anytime we get off the air. I like to know what, if there was feedback that was coming in. I go back and take a look at the Telegram group and see what people are saying in there. Of course, we read the, uh, you know, the emails and stuff that people send in for the show. And it's interesting. I'll see comments like somebody will say, oh, I was talking to no and Then all of a sudden I realized that he had already, uh, he had already moved on to the next call or he'd already moved on. And, and so I, I realized I was talking to myself. And, and you know, that is something that, you know, we in the, in, in the broadcast industry is, is fairly, you know, is, is fairly accepted that, you know, I as a host, when the, when, when I, when I think that the call is time to move on or when I see a stack of other calls that I need to get to, then I, you know, that's kind of my discretion. But at the same time, as a listener, I I definitely acknowledge and uh, uh, you know and, and and want to point out the fact that you know we appreciate the fact that you guys uh, put up with that kind of standard that you know and you ask a question we'll we'll take your question make it into show content and then when that value runs out then we move on and we really appreciate you being understanding about that and there's some of you that call in time and time again we re- definitely appreciate you guys. Now we have to make some changes to the show nothing huge nothing big. Uh, but there are some minor production uh, tweaks that we're going to have to make. And by the way, we might actually be able to avoid making a few of them. If there is anyone out there that can connect me to a human being at YouTube, let me know. Uh, that would be really terrific, and it would save me a ton of work. Because despite the fact that I have paid for Creative Commons license, despite the fact that Google themselves admits that all the content we play here is Creative Commons licensed, their stupid robot keeps flanking my outro music my legally purchased Creative Commons licensed outro music. And it's the frustration has gotten to the point where we're just going to have to look into something else. But I would like to not have to look into something else. So if there's somebody out there that can help me with that, reach out to me via our contact link. And I, Actually, no, I take that back. This is important enough to me. If you have the answer to this particular question, please email me directly, Noah at altaspeed.com. That's Noah at A-L-T-I-S-P-E-E-D dot com. And uh I'd like to see if how's that for irony. The host of the Ask Noah Show is asking the audience for help with the Ask Noah Show. <laughs> now, um, since we have to make some changes anyway, and I'm aiming for episode 20, we'll see what actually happens. I'm not even here this week. I'm out at, you know, hanging out in Bozeman. But uh, we'll see if I can if, if I can actually get the the timing to align. I would like to have all of the changes set up for episode 20. But now's the time to speak up. If there's something that you're unhappy with. The show, if there's a change you'd like to suggest, now it's time to let me know. Maybe you want to hear more callers. Maybe you're sick of the sound of Noah's voice. Maybe you'd like to, uh, hear more, us take more calls. Now the truth is, to date, we have only ever not taken one call. There's only ever one call in the call queue that we didn't get to on air. Every other time, every other call that's come in, we have put on air. Uh, that were appropriate, I guess I should say. I mean, if the, if you call up, you know, squaring and screaming, we're not gonna, we're not gonna hear that. But, um, I don't know. that there's a whole lot we can do on that front to to take more phone calls, but it'd certainly be in, in you know information we'd like to know. And also, if you'd like to hear, I I know there's been an ongoing discussion about taking emails on air. And actually, let me get that program fired uh, fired back up live at asknoahshow.com. If you want to send us an email, we'd love to take your uh, emails live here on the air. We're just gonna get this uh, this fired up. So there we go. Okay, so now I'm ready to take uh, emails live at asknoahshow.com. If that's something. That you want to do. But basically, if you have a suggestion for the show, I'd like to hear it. So, uh, you know, uh, le- let us know. Uh, use the contact form, asknoahshow.com, or, you know, heck, send it to live at asknoahshow.com. I don't care. Whichever you want to do. But I'm taking all of your suggestions. And of course, uh, make sure to head over to the Ask Noah dashboard. And uh, that's where you can keep up to date. Again, phone lines are open, one 855 450 noah 450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Now, last week, we were talking about Libvirt. We we're talking about Libvirt, and i was telling you some of the experiences that i had now a good friend of mine i had the opportunity of kind of going through this battle together crystal luca from west virginia and uh, we were out we did a, a coverage out at his uh, school a couple months back and then uh, just last month we met up at southeast linux fest chris is uh, you know a vm master uh, he traditionally worked a lot with vmware and he is coming around to uh, to see the light with Libert and Chris and I have been kind of doing this together, and Chris is joining us tonight to to talk with us. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Hey, Noah, thanks, and uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your vacation and also on the 4th of July to do the show. Uh, We really, I really appreciate it. Hey man,
1: it's fun. Now let me ask you something. Is this your inaugural uh, stop on the Ask Noah show? Have you been? I mean, I know you were part of the, like the pre-episode. Uh, you called in with a couple of questions, but he, yeah, this is the first time you've ever been on the Ask Noah show, yeah?
2: Um, since you've gone live on the radio, yes, I believe so.
1: Outstanding. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. So let's start from the beginning. So. Basically I was sitting there I had my issues over at uh, at one of my clients and I, I was complaining to you saying how 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 upset I was at HyperV and you and you in your uh, in your wisdom said uh, I got some news for you HyperV sucks nobody actually uses it in production that cares about their stuff and you know <laughs> it's like yeah that's super helpful that's really what I wanted to hear thanks thanks but um but no uh, so then I started telling you I said this is this is what I'm doing this is how I'm going to restructure these things and then you actually went out and bought some hardware tell me that story
2: Um, Yeah, actually, it it has not arrived yet, Uh, but following your uh, suggestions, I found some pretty inexpensive hardware online, Uh, as well as to play with. I bought a Lenovo T430 laptop uh, with just 8 gigs of RAM and a 500-gig hard drive, and like you've already said many times, I am amazed at what LibBert will do on such limited hardware. Yeah,
1: actually, the laptop was really what I was kind of referring to, is that the fact that you have this laptop. That's what you originally bought to kind of test some of this stuff out, test the waters out, so to speak, before you actually dove in, right?
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. And and the laptop is what the T430s are five-year-old hardware, and it was purchased, used, and it works beautifully.
1: That's fantastic. So, I I guess, so tell me this. um, What kind of things have you looked to replace, like, what kind of things were you doing in VMware that you're now saying, you know, I can knock that out at no cost to my clients with LibVirt?
2: Well, my my client actually doesn't have VMware. I run VMware in my uh, uh, day job, but... Um, I actually would like to take their uh, Windows server like you have and virtualize it and then use the massive hardware that they're running the server doing absolutely nothing on uh, and move it back to um, live virtualized on this as well as move some of their desktops if I can because uh, my client has some 7-year-old uh, desktops, as you can imagine, Windows 7, 7-years-old seven uh, It it runs like garbage. And if I could utilize this, I believe it's a 12-core Dell server and utilize it and maybe put some thin clients on their desk, uh, I think that they would actually have faster machines and get more work done with less power usage and just – and VMware, the price of VMware compared to what – there's no competition there.
1: So I know one of the things, and and uh, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna give you my thunder, but basically one of the things that I had been playing with um, after we got Libvirt done and we had virtualized everything was I said okay I'm gonna take these workstations that you know just, there's there's places where they just have to run some Windows software there's just no way two ways about it, um, and uh, I never ever advocate. Uh, running windows itself in fact you can always get tasks done um outside of of any particular windows software but sometimes um you have users that they are just accustomed to a given set of software in this case it's a it's a particular piece of accounting software they just they, they want to run that particular software and so as a as a consultant i am just told as a static that we need to run xyz software that's not really up for debate um But we never, ever sign with a client where everything is set in stone, right? Where they say, like, you you will do X, Y, Z. We want a computer set up to run this piece of software. We never sign for that because we wouldn't be able to manage it effectively. We're not going to put a solution into place that we know is going to burn the house to the ground. And so one of the things that we have done is we have taken all of those virtualized workstations and in this case we virtualized that that workstation that we run that accounting software and then we're letting them rdp into it now you can do that on linux you can use it's a great client it works very very well tweak those settings and you can get darn near native performance especially if you're on a LAN but Chris you and I have been working on something a little cool we basically you and I started by looking at in computing's uh, you know uh, L300 I believe it is the uh, the little thin client that that will facilitate um, a basically an RDP connection over their uh, vServer software Um, but you and I are trying to replicate that over Raspberry Pi's talk about that.
2: Well, uh, you are actually the one who pointed it out to me. And uh, the price of Raspberry Pis being what they are, I couldn't not do it. So I had, I, have, I followed your suggestion. I purchased a Raspberry Pi. Um, the software was fairly easy to set up. I mean, you basically just DD it onto a, um, an SD card, stick it in the Pi, boot the Pi. Uh, the only issues I have run into... Uh, mainly because I'm pushing the the graphics limits of the Pi. The only issues I've run into have been uh, like playing YouTube or video. Uh, other than that, for basic computing tasks, browsing, email, typing documents, I don't think that, that they would even notice a difference. And, and like you said, it is just an RDP session to a Windows desktop, and my client does run some... Uh, proprietary accounting software that they need to use. Actually, it's a point of sale software. It only runs on Windows. So if I could do that, oh my goodness, The, the, the pie is amazing.
1: So, and one of the things that that I'm looking at doing is kind of similar to you is, um, and I know we've ho- talked about this as my client, we we both need to move audio over. And I can't remember your reason for doing it. Mine was that they have um, some audio editing software and this audio, it's not, it's not complex audio editing, but they just basically need to listen to dictation. So they need to stop, play, uh, speed up, slow down, rewind, fast forward, those kind of things. And so audio redirection is very important, but this operating system that you and I are using, and we'll have a link in the show notes, I I think it's called, it's the Raspberry Pi Thin Client Operating System, but basically what you do is you open up a config file, and you say, this is the RDP server I want you to connect to, this is the port I want you to connect through, here's the username, I want you to redirect audio, I want you to redirect USB, you can even get in there so granular as to say, I just want you to redirect USB drives, not USB devices, all that kind of stuff, Um. And then basically when that Raspberry Pi boots up it boots up into a full screen 1080p session of that RDP session. And that you know to me is is a real great way to get Windows doing what Windows does best which is run, you know, a plethora of software and then you and then you layer that on top of what Linux does best which is run securely and, you know, with, with great stability, you know, on, on the bare metal. And we, you and I have talked about how we are making sterile copies then, or snapshots, of those VMs, and then we can go back and restore.
2: That is, Yes, that is mainly my reason, because I have bought twice uh, Windows viruses that have caused me to have to go down and recover machines from backup, not to mention Hundreds of gigs of data from backup that have been corrupted by, uh, I believe it was a CryptoLocker variant. And uh, and you actually to be able to, to utilize that in Libvirt D to bring that back in minutes rather than hours, remotely rather than driving for an hour to my client is just it. It goes without saying how 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 well that works.
1: Yeah because you actually you actually had a situation where you had a client that uh that you had to drive a significant amount of time just to restore from backups and then took a couple hours so you know it'd be interesting to to stay in contact with you Chris. And thanks for thank you so much for the call coming on the show and Chatting with us, explaining you know what's going on with you, and and it'll be kind of it's it's been let me tell you it has been super fun to have a friend to go through this with. I don't know if any of you have ever geeked out uh you know by yourself and then ever had the opportunity to geek out with a friend, but when you and a friend are exploring the same piece of technology at the same time, and then that guy comes back and he says you know Chris will come back and he'll say this is what I found that I can do with it, you should try this, and I'll say oh well this is what I found that I can do with it, you should try this, and it's it's been like nonstop over the last you know week and a half. And you know here's another thing too. I'll take a moment and then I'm gonna get to. Uh, some of the other calls here you know there's a couple of people that 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 reached out they said you know why doesn't Noah ever talk about Proxmox that's really weird you know it's such a great piece of software and it is it is a fantastic piece of software in fact I go so far as to say if you have no experience with virtualization and you want to set up a virtualization yeah I'll learn how to talk that's what I'll do uh and then after i learn how to talk then i'll tell you that if you want to learn how to set up a virtualization host and you want to do it today quickly and efficiently go do proxmox because proxmox is the is the appliance solution to open source virtualization and it supports clustering and it supports it's it's got this great web ui i mean i don't have enough good things to say about proxmox it's a great solution and everyone should check it out if you haven't as to why I am not using Proxmox. I went. Through, it's a really dumb reason, actually. But I went through a lot of the Red Hat certification courses, and uh, they taught us how to use Libvirt and um, and Virt Manager. And you can actually control because because Proxmox is really just a really fancy front end to to uh, Libvirt. Uh, you know, basically. I mean, it's running on on, on Libvirt. My understanding is on the underpinnings are. Uh, so you can actually manage it with Virt Manager, no problem. Of course, you can manage VMware with Virt Manager too. But I learned how to do it a certain way, and so I've just continued to do it that way. And when I come across something I can't do in Vert Manager with LibVert, I will totally start looking for something else. But that is not to say that there is anything wrong with Proxmox or Noah doesn't like it. No, no, no. Proxmox is amazing. It has two thumbs way, way up from the Ask Noah show. Very, very much like Proxmox. James is calling from Pennsylvania. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah show.
2: Thank you, Noah. Uh, I'm looking to do a uh, an AMD Ryzen 7 build, and I just wanted to, um, I guess I've had a little bit of conflicting information um, about as far as graphics, AMD versus NVIDIA, and I just wanted to kind of get your, your take or understanding on that, which would be the better option.
1: Well, I tell you what, James, I, I guess my first thought is to say, NVIDIA. If you want to know where the safe, happy zone is, it's going to be NVIDIA. I have had, I have used NVIDIA cards on every machine known to man, all the way from the cheap little crappy NVIDIA cards you buy at Best Buy, made by PNY, or even their, in I forget, what's their in-store brand, Insignia, or whatever, whatever their in-store brand thing is for 49 bucks just because I had a client that needed two displays and so I needed, you know, an a, an additional graphics card. I've used Nvidia chipsets all the way from those all the way up to the one that's in my personal workstation which is, you know, considerably more expensive. And all all of those, everything in between has been flawless under Linux. The only exception to that is there's a couple laptops where I've had some issues with them. Um, Uh, with a a particular version of the NVIDIA driver with Lux. Um, And you can't, if you encrypt the hard drive and have NVIDIA, which is kind of weird two things to go together. But if you do that, uh, it it causes some sort of a conflict. So that's the safe choice. However, if you're asking me, if I was building a Ryzen machine, would I go with AMD or NVIDIA? Well, to be honest, the reason we're going with Ryzen is because we're trying to eke out every little bit of performance for for, for our dollar, right? And so if we're willing to take that chance with the CPU, why wouldn't we take that chance with the GPU? And, um, you know, it's kind of nice just to say, you know, you have, you know, AMD all from the ground up and you can build a, you know, a, a machine for a couple bucks less that kicks the crap out of an Intel box, you know? Yeah. Okay.
2: Um, does, that,
1: does that give you some is ideas? Is there
2: anything? It, yeah. Is there any kind of um, specific series or anything that 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 is either known to work better or less well? with linux is there anything i should be looking for in particular um
1: well if you got the money for
2: it i know the that i would go the amd
1: route oh oh okay the amd route hmm i don't know anything off the top of my head but i tell you what i will do i will do a little bit of digging here when i get off the air and i will throw a couple suggestions for you what i'll tell you what i would buy if i was going to go out and buy a, a um an amd graphics card what i would be buying on linux i'll have those available uh, for you in the show notes thank you very much for the call and do give us a call back and let me know how that goes when that uh when that bill comes together that'll be really interesting to see because i uh i actually i have the makings of a ryzen box and uh one of these days i'm gonna i'm gonna get to it and i'm gonna finish it up but um but yeah give us a call back i'd love to i'd love to hear how that works out again w- phone lines are open one 450 noah that's 855-450-6624 or live at asknoahshow.com uh let's see here james writes in at live at and says uh hi noah love the show i have a bit of a beginner question for you is there a best practice of where to put an app image i download things and they end up in my downloads folder but i'm not sure where to put them after that i have both openshot and telegram just sitting in the downloads folder and that's what i've uh, that's where i've been launching them from just because i'm not sure where to put them long term well opt is a good, good place for throwing throw a lot of that stuff um IBM actually, uh, uh, when they have, they have their, uh, their Lotus Domino server, both the server and the, uh, and the user applications, um, basically it's just a folder full of files and that everything runs out of there and they just create a Lotus folder inside of opt and put it there. That might be a decent place. Home directory wouldn't be a bad place. Um, if I'm doing something that's, uh, totally just kind of out there in the open, if I'm, like, I need a working directory or if I'm doing a video project and I want to, you know, a project scratch folder or something like that, usually I throw it in my, in my home folder. Just because that way I can, A, if I need to clean up hard drive space, I know where I'm looking for things. B, if I want to back something up when I go to restore the computer, the number one place I'm looking for is my home folder. So that's probably not a bad, bad place to, uh, to check either. Uh, let's see here. Who else writes in? This is some sort of forward. I, uh, I, 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 I'm probably, Mr. Dominguez, we'll call you Mr. Dominguez, writes in and says, I went ahead and set up 2C file server and they are running awesome. I do recall that you're working on a backup solution at Ultaspeed. I currently have just mirrored drives, but I'm not comfortable with working with just mirrored drives. Did you ever find a solution? Suggestions. Thanks. I love the show. Well, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. But mirroring drives is not is not a backup solution. And you know there's one thing we are going to do an episode on backup solutions. Uh, the The reality is that I am so sick in the community of hearing people say, that's not a backup solution. That's not a real backup solution. You really should have a different backup solution because the the reality is the backup solution that you have is better than the than the best backup solution you've dreamt up that you're going to get to someday. Okay, so I don't care if your backup solution is just once a week you could go in there and copy some files off onto an external drive. Is it the best backup solution? No, and we can all talk about why that is. But I would rather somebody do that than just not back up their 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 files because somebody. Told them that wasn't a backup solution. I remember this event pretty clearly. I was at Southeast Linux Fest this was a couple years ago. I was standing in line with a good friend of mine, and he was uh, he was in line behind me, and he was talking about his uh, new backup solution. His new backup solution was he had a new RAID five system that he put in. Um, and uh, and you know, there's, right off the bat, there's somebody right behind him. Well, that's not a real backup solution. You shouldn't really even bother with that because that's not going to back up your data. And um, he's right. You know, if you if that machine gets infected you know a cryptolocker infects it or whatever um even if he doesn't even if even if he keeps his files completely totally safe you know he has a friend that comes over and that person has a windows computer and that windows computer's cryptolocker on it and it it accesses a samba share on his computer you know it is good encrypt his files and, and it's not a backup solution it's not uh, it's not the best backup solution anyway but it was better than what he had which was nothing it was better than than he just having one single hard drive in his computer and uh, and, a, and a wing and a prayer that nothing was going to happen to his data. So, the purpose of backup, ultimately, is to not lose data. And going from a single hard drive to a RAID five is certainly one step in a proper direction of not losing data. So, I, we're going to do a full a full, uh, a full uh, you know session on backup to, to answer your question directly. What did I do at AltaSpeed, We use rsync, and we rsync the data directory of C file uh once every night at midnight and then um once every week the it r syncs over to a, a machine that i just swapped that i physically swapped hard drives so we have a, a a cold storage so to speak backup of that uh, of that machine and that's what we're doing right now and that may get a little bit more complex cuz we are currently testing and playing with bacula and uh we'll report back and let you know how that works Again, phone lines are open. one No 450 noaa It's 450-6624. We're live at AskNoahShow.com. Matthew is calling from Maine. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Hi, Noah. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to let you know, um, I work, uh, I do IT services in a remote part of the country. And uh, one of my client bases is small-town governments. Uh, now... Sometimes the small town governments, there's there's a long time between initiating a deal and and finalizing that deal uh, because they have to go back and forth. You know, there's that discussion, and the governments really meet uh, basically once a month. And I was wondering if you have any idea on how to establish a business relationship with, with these governments so that I don't have this big lead time into closing a deal where the profits are relatively small.
1: Yeah, sure. So there's actually it sounds like there's two questions in there. The first is, how do we establish those relationships? And then the second question is, how do we close those deal fasters? And there's I have two different answers for you. So the first answer, how do you establish those relationships? Well, one of the things is just being involved in those communities, because a lot of the people that make those decisions and we fight this, not fight this battle, but we we are cognizant of this challenge i should say in grand forks is a lot of the people that make those decisions you know they're just they're human beings and they're a part of the community and so they're going to do business with other people that they know are part of the community and whose name comes to mind and so um things that you know like so we try to get be active with them with kids uh you know getting kids involved with technology and and helping out that way Um, we also try to do uh live events so um, one of the things that I do personally is I go participate in our amateur radio events in town, um, at least I try to, um, you know and those kind of things people run into you and they oh that's you know oh that is that's Matthew Matthew does IT stuff Matthew uh Matthew is the guy that you know he he really knows that stuff and so when they go to make a decision they say well we need some computers for you know the uh you know uh, the DMV office or whatever who are we going to call well, you know that Matthew guy he always seems to be around i wonder if he would be able to help us with something like that so that that networking thing and the other thing is you there's actually a lot of like structured events so Grand Forks has this um it's like a small business uh, community, and and they, uh, you, I, I'm on their, I'm in their Facebook group and stuff, and so I get updates and stuff like that. But they even have like meetings and stuff. If I had time, I would, I would attend those. Uh, that's a great way to to get involved, um, and that's how you can, that's how that you can get people to think of your name to begin with. It might not even hurt to offer some free service or some discounted service. Uh, to certain things like you see indeed, need, you know maybe your city has they have some uh, machines that are going to go into a given office and you know the the budget's tight maybe you offer to go do the labor for free and you 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 just make your buck off the uh, off the hardware maybe you go the other way you give them the hardware costs and you and you uh, and you just bill them for your labor something like that that would be a way to, to to establish a relationship now as to how you close government deals that is a major pain of mine This it's a huge frustration. Um, and the only thing that I have ever found that's come close to working. First of all, it's going to take forever anyway. And you're right. They, they put out bids. And so typically you don't make a lot of money off of the hardware sale anyway. And so you're, you're making your money off of labor. But here's, here's the, the thing I fa- found that works the closest to speed those things up. Come up with what has been approved in the past. Because if you've done this before, then you, you submit a bid and they say, well, we need it to be below this price point or we need these things or we want those, those features or these specifications. And the, it's kind of a back and forth thing, right? Find out what sails through and, and where the, you know, and then try submitting that bid the next time, even if it's with a different agency. So, like, let's say I'll give you an example. Most of the places that we have gone to are looking for i5s, eight gigs of RAM, and a one terabyte hard drive. That's just just off the top of my head. That's what a lot of, a lot of places that are purchasing machines from us are are looking for. So, if I was going to go to a government facility, even if I didn't think they needed an i5, let's say it's the front desk girl. And she, uh, checks a web-based, uh, you know, there's a web-based software, or whatever. So she spends all of her time in Chrome. Well, she probably doesn't need a Core i5 to do that. She could probably get that job done with an i3. And so it's tempting to say, well, I, I can undercut the other guy by offering it, you know, a bit, a little bit lower. That, that's the, a lot of those company, or especially, you know, in government, they have these specification sheets that say, this is what we want. This is what we demand. And so, they're going to stamp out anyone that doesn't meet those criteria they're going to come back to you and say well actually we'd like to get these specifications so you can find a you can find a happy media and say this is kind of what seems to sail through every single time you can start with that and that kind of speeds it up a little bit the other thing you can do and this seems to work very well with the university system i don't know if it would work so well with um you know with 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 uh, like city gov- small town city governments but vouchers uh, are a big thing so the 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 university system does not want to pay you directly in checks they have this really weird program where if you sell them a piece of hardware software whatever they especially student organizations is big they will pay you in in a voucher and then you take the voucher and you take it down to the the university like uh, payment office or administration office and then they will exchange that for a check and then you can cash it and get your money the thing is there is a lot of businesses that will not work with vouchers they won't they won't accept them and so if you are if you go out and say hey listen I will work with you whatever payment system you you guys work with I'm willing to 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 jump through those hoops that will give you a leg up does that is that is that at all helpful to you any of that
2: yeah that's a lot of good information thank you very much
1: we really appreciate your call thanks for joining us on the ask no show do me a favor give me a call back let me know how that works for you be interested to hear it government working with government can always be can always be a pain uh, Blue Zero is calling. Hi, Blue, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
0: Hey, Noah.
1: Hey there, how can we help?
0: Hey, Noah. Uh, I've been having a weird time on GIMP the last couple of, like, last two months, and I cannot seem to crop the picture correctly do you know any alternatives to GIMP? GIMP. I like GIMP way too much to not use it. It's more reliable, but the last two months, there's been a weird glitch where I can't find the crop tool.
1: Okay, well, I, I guess let's start with this. The crop tool in GIMP is simply the little thing that looks like a, like a, a, a you know, like I don't know, like a square with the the. Uh, it doesn't look like a crop tool. I guess it's that's the. I would think of a crop tool. I would think like a scissors. No, it, it doesn't look like anything like what I would picture a crop tool. But uh, you can definitely. It's a pretty simple thing to crop in GIMP. In fact, I use GIMP to crimp all of anytime I need to crimp, uh, uh, to a crop an image. I'm using GIMP. That's just uh, it's kind of my go to. But It actually isn't what I use for photo editing. GIMP is really kind of the software that you use for image creation, from scratch image creation. So there's two ways you can create images. The first way is completely from scratch. I'm an artist and I want to draw or create an image, or I want to take an existing image and I want to very granularly modify the image that's the kind of thing where gimp really comes in for just general photo editing i want to crop this photo i want to color balance this i want to tweak the white balance there i want to do that i actually recommend a different program it's called Darktable, and uh, dark table is a fantastic piece of software for image editing and photo editing specifically and you can import an entire photo library and then you can go through and you can actually make all sorts of tweaks and one of the things that uh, dark table supports that's really helpful is white balance profiling and so do you do a lot of photography
0: Uh, I am a photographer, but I've mainly been messing around, creating photos and all that, using GIMP. I'm more familiar with GIMP than Darktable, but I will go to Darktable and dust out my camera.
1: Yeah, so I'll, tell you, I'll give you an example of where Darktable really, uh, really f- fits the bill, and I thank you very much for the call. So let's say you take a, a picture. And the white balance is off, and so you go and fix it, and you go and re-white balance your camera, you take the picture, and you pull it into the photo editor, and yet again the white balance is off, and you start saying, "Okay, this camera, the way that this sensor works, I don't like the way that it white the way that the auto white balance works, or even when I hold a white piece of white paper up and I take it, I I don't like it." And actually, Nikon had a had a there was a huge kerfluffle back with like I think it was like the six the D six hundred and ten, and they um. And they, they had this issue where there, there was this whole series of sensors that had an issue where the white balance wasn't exactly, it was just a little bit off. And one of the things that Darktable helped me do when that, when, when that problem first came up for it, and a couple of clients that were using Darktable to do photo editing was we were able to go build a template and say, this is how off the, the white balance is. So, so we made that correction. And also while you're at it, you know, these couple tweaks just, the picture just looks better when you make these couple tweaks and you can make that template and then you can just tell it when i import from this particular photo library automatically do all of these things to the images and that kind of automation is fantastic because then you can go back and you can just say okay well this image i got to tweak this a little bit that image i got to tweak that a little bit and it 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 really it really you know automates a lot of the process a lot of the repetitive stuff that you you know you really shouldn't have to do every single time. Again, phone lines one eight five five four five zero Noah four five zero six six two four live at AskNoahShow.com. Fedora twenty six. Now you guys know that I'm a diehard advocate of CentOS on servers. Now, a big part of that, and I will admit this up front, is bias. I grew up banging on Red Hat boxes, and so I'm very familiar with it. And most of the issues that pop up in CentOS, I'm well versed in. I know exactly how to fix a lot of things, and I know where to look for certain symptoms, even if I've not used that particular software stack before. Now, this is – I don't know how really to, to to dive into this, but if you're a diehard user of a particular software stack, and this even applies to a lesser extent to hardware, but you begin to feel the software. You begin to feel the hardware, and you'll get to a point where you can feel if the hardware or the software is working correctly. And you get to a point where at some point you can intuitively go to a place where something isn't working without being able to articulate why you're at that place or how you arrive there. So if I see an, uh, i give you a kind of, this is kind of a crappy example, but if I see an issue with the network stack, my fingers will automatically start banging out CD slash Etsy slash sysconfig slash network dash scripts. That has flowed out of my fingers before I can even think of what it is, is I want to troubleshoot, much less where I need to go to begin troubleshooting. If I see an issue with the network stack, it just it happens, and I don't even think about it. Being that in tune with an operating system, being that in tune with a given set of software, th- th- that does not pass as evidence of being a good operating system or a compelling reason for somebody to use the thing, but it does make it really, really, really hard to drag oneself away from it when you are that attached to a given you know, piece of software. And even putting my bias aside, CentOS and Red Hat have the backing of one of the largest open source companies to date. In the business world, selling Red Hat these days is a lot like what I would describe selling IBM back in the 90s. And, the, you know, it's funny, there used to be a saying back in the 90s. The saying was, no one's ever been fired for selling IBM. And that is very true in 2017. In the Linux world... I mean, every school I go to, every government, we're just talking about government agency, every government agency I go to, every rinky-dink client office, everyone has heard of Red Hat. And Canonical's uh, Ubuntu is probably the close second thing. And certainly in the amateur Linux circles or in the development circles, it's probably more prevalent than Red Hat. And with Canonical, most people will tell you that it's a five-year upgrade cycle. So they'll say, well, we you know publish security updates on the LTS for five years, and so you should probably plan on upgrading your service every five years. But I know people that are using uh, RHEL 5. Uh, is that could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. I don't know. It depends on how you look at it, I guess. But the reality is if you want a machine that you can put into production and you're not going to touch it, and that's what you come as a client and tell me that's what you want, I'm going with Red Hat every single time. And for those of you who don't understand why I'm using the terms Red Hat and CentOS interchangeably – Red Hat is a product that is very reasonably priced, if you ask me. I believe it starts at $300 a year for licensing, and CentOS has the same code. they have just It has just been compiled by somebody else, and then they pulled all of the Red Hat logos and Red Hat name off of it because, you know, Red Hat didn't appreciate them stealing that. And before those of you who are spinning up Thunderbird right now to fi- fire off an email, or maybe you're fighting your way through Nihilist to write me a message. And you're telling me at the code level, it's technically different, Noah. It's technically different. I sat a class not that long ago with an instructor from Red Hat who says it's binary compatible. So you can do, he actually told the class, do all of your work in CentOS and you can pass a Red Hat test. So that's close enough for me. Okay. Moving on. Calls one 855 450 noah That's one 450 6624 live at AskNoahShow.com. So i been an unapologetic fan of CentOS on the server. But what do you do about desktop Linux? Now, typically, I've been recommending Ubuntu proper. When I say Ubuntu proper, I mean Ubuntu with Unity. Up <laughs> until Unity. However, with the recent changes coming to GNOME, there is a lot less difference from a user's perspective between Ubuntu and Fedora. There's a couple of you that are thinking, no, you're crazy. There's these huge differences between, you know, Fedora and Ubuntu. Now, obviously, under the hood, it's completely different. Different package manager. Different update process, different update schedule, different upgrade upgrade schedule, different software availability. Everything is different under the hood. But most users that we support, we set all that jazz up for them. You know, if you call speed Technologies, we don't we don't come out and and say, well, we recommend Fedora. Here's a disc, have at it, Haas. You know, we install the operating system, we install all of the software packages. If third party repos are necessary, we add all of that. So you're not as a client, you're not doing that anyway. And, uh, you know, once we get done with all of that, the reality is that uh, opening Chrome up on Fedora, pretty much identical to opening Chrome up on, well, it is identical. Like opening Chrome up on Fedora is identical to opening Fedora up on a, on a bunch. It's the same thing. Same thing with Firefox, same thing with Thunderbird. They're all exactly the same. That's because both distros are now centering around GNOME. Now, some of you know, I used to be a Fedora on every box I touched kind of guy. And um, when I started going more of the advocacy route, I started using Ubuntu more and more because Ubuntu has the name recognition in the desktop world. When you you go ask ten people, have you ever heard of Linux? They're probably going to say, "Yeah, I, I've heard of Linux. I've heard of Ubuntu." I stand by what I said. If you go into you know you go into to some place that's you know that has a you know a, a cluster service, you ask them if they've heard of uh, Red Hat, you know, and chances are they probably heard of both, but uh, you know. Red Hat is just its a selling name in, inside the servers. Ubuntu is a, is a very good selling name inside desktops. And uh, when I started doing more and more JB stuff, I went back to GNOME in the way of Antargos. And now I am seriously considering coming full circle back to Fedora for a couple of reasons. First is I've been playing with Fedora 16, 26, <laughs> 16 I've been playing with Fedora 26, and it is by far the best release of Fedora yet. Two, I can still do my day job supporting others, even if they choose to use Ubuntu, because the majority of problems that users run into are unrelated, uh, are unrelated to the backend infrastructure. And they're more related to the desktop environment or the, or the, you know, the UI system. So, for example, somebody wants the ping indicator. That's irrelevant if it's Ubuntu or Fedora, it's going to work. And you know, I can I can solve software backend problems you know pretty quickly. Anyway, the real thing, you know, it's it's when somebody wants their trackpad shut off, they want touch to click shut off, they want the trackpad speed increased, or they want you know a, a, a different Wi-Fi profile. All of that stuff falls under is is our gnome issues. So as long as I'm using the same desktop environment, should be fine. Um, third, Fedora seems to be restructuring themselves more as a workstation. OS, and this is something that's been very encouraging to me, because for the longest time, I always felt like Fedora was an okay operating system for me, because I didn't mind if I hit a couple bumps along the road, and Fedora was leading edge, not bleeding edge like Antargos, but leading edge, but I I was hesitant to ever recommend it to anyone else. Well, it seems more and more, with every release, they are moving more and more towards this desktop, Linux user-centered, workstation-type OS. And I'm very, very comfortable with placing my clients on the hands of Red Hat's community spin off of a desktop operating site. I like that idea. I like that concept. And, you know, a lot of people have said, well, you know, I don't really understand. Red Hat is a end servers, and then you have this CentOS, which is the community enterprise operating system. So where does Fedora fit in? And I, I've always seen Red Hat and CentOS as server operating systems, and Fedora is kind of a desktop operating system. Not that you can't. I mean, there's plenty of people that are using CentOS or Red Hat as desktops, you know, especially if you're working in a workstation scientific type environment. There's plenty of people that are using Fedora on servers. Not saying you can't do it. Uh, it just, I think that's kind of where, you know, if you try and get VLC and you go on a forum and ask, on a Red Hat forum, how to install VLC on Red Hat. They're going to tell you, why are you installing VLC on Red Hat? It's a server distro. Again, phone lines, 1-855-450-NOAA. It's 855-450-6624 or live at AskNoahShow.com. So Fedora 26 came out last week, I think the 11th, if I'm not mistaken. And I personally believe, uh, I'm an expert on my own opinion, that this is the best release of Fedora yet. You know it, I know it, everyone knows it. It's the best. Now, it starts with the upgrade process. Part of my nuke and pave mentality that you'll see if you ever meet me in person or if you hire me as a consultant comes from my humble beginnings as a kid running with Fedora. I learned very early on that a nice, clean install always beats a maybe will work at best, but will keep all your junk from your last install upgrade. Now, the upgrade process in Fedora 26, next level amazing the graphical guide makes it feel almost like you're reinstalling the operating system from the perspective of control it's extremely granular it's not just a click here click the button and we upgrade the process and if it doesn't work then we tell you you got to reinstall anyway it's not like that it's v- very very good and i've spoken to some people that uh, have done it through the cli they've they've had equally uh, pleasant um experiences although uh, admittedly not as uh, as granular now i have personally upgraded three machines Zero problems on all three machines. I'm three for three, and they run flawlessly. And I'm a big Fedora fan. Uh, and and, and I, I have been a big Fedora fan for a long time, but that's impressive for them because I have not always, uh, you know, I've not always had a lot of faith in the Fedora upgrade process. And I did some online research to see if other users had the same experience as I have. And I chatted with one guy on Telegram that said, yeah, man, my upgrade process was noticeably smoother than it has been in the past but i did see an issue and this is you know on a couple different sites uh we'll have it linked in the show notes where some users had an issue with libd which is the daemon used to track the database changes Now, i'm also uh you know at the moment i'm sitting in my rvm right next door to a veteran of the linux community mr chris fisher and so i was chatting with him last night about uh, fedora and the upgrade experience and he said um like many others he had a silky smooth experience now he's actually an interesting case because he spun up a machine um on Fedora, like 22 or 23 or something like that, just to see how long he could run a Fedora machine. And he said he has been upgrading it every single time, and he has some containers running in there, and he's got some virtual servers, and he's got Cockpit. And he said, I think he actually did his upgrade through Cockpit, if I'm not mistaken, and he said that its it's been flawless since, you know, 22, 23, 24, whatever it's been. Um, and uh, and so th- they've really made some headwear, headway. And all the users I could find that, were having issues with the upgrade process with that LibD. they were testing the beta so maybe the fedora team has solved this particular issue and this is not an issue anymore but all i can tell you is on the three machines that i upgraded myself the process was remarkably smoother in the past and it has it has fundamentally made me request you know rethink um what i'm going to be using as a distro moving forward because if i'm stuck on centos on the server it really makes a lot of sense to have red hat's desktop distro running on my laptop at least it would seem to. By the way, before it sounds like I'm ragging on the Fedora team, I still, I still prefer a clean install to an upgrade on any distro, even if it's a flawless upgrade. So even with all of these changes done to Fedora, and even though it works, it works great. I, I still want, I would still prefer a clean upgrade. And the, really, what it amounts to is just the, the amount of junk that collects in my home folder. You know, in your home folder, if you, are especially if you're on hide, Control H, look at all the hidden folders. You have profiles and, and the amount of crud just irritates the heck out of me. It's, it's, it's just stupid how much stuff collects inside of your home folder. And so the ability to kind of clean all that out is really helpful. And then the other problem is I'm a bit of a digital pack rat. So I tend to never delete anything and I just might, I, I just organize it a little bit better. And then when I run out of things to organize or when I don't know where that particular thing fits, it just, stays in my download folders so, you know, it's like windows second edition you know disc 16 yeah i better keep that i might need that someday you never know it's just it, it come up i have a client that has windows 98 and is missing Disk 16 so I, I better keep a copy of that that's the kind of dumb things that are in my downloads so it's just stupid so uh, a, but i'm not going to back that stuff up so if if uh, i reinstall it's just it's an opportunity for me to kind of close my eyes pinch my nose and like okay we're erasing everything hopefully i got everything In addition to the upgrade process, Fedora 26, like Fedora 25, is not something new in 26, but they have support for ARM. Now, interestingly enough, it was Ubuntu Mate that really drove me down this particular point, but being able to run the exact same distribution on my $35 project computer that I'm running on my $3,500 workstation in my office seems to be incredibly useful. In fact, I went almost an entire week without noticing I was on a Pi until I went to install a particular package, and it wasn't in the repo, and I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, I know this package is in here. It worked on my other boxes. Why isn't it working? Oh, yeah. This is the ARM version. And so, yeah, I mean, the Pi 3 is that good. And we were talking about that earlier with, uh, with Crystal Luca. I mean, we, we've gotten to the point where... We have the software even running over a network stack and just bringing in a remote desktop. The Pi feels that responsive. I mean, they've done a really great job. And that's a $35 computer. So imagine what happens if you buy one of these L300, you know, actual thin clients or you buy even a these rising computers for a couple hundred bucks. So and yet again, you have some really cool individual pieces coming together to make a terrific whole. This is kind of like when we had, you know, people when we had the community centering around GNOME and System D and stuff like that. You have an amazing enterprise-grade billion with a B dollar company that is funding a desktop project that is tailored more and more and more for workstations. At the same time, you have an operating system that is available for use on a $35 project computer that you can Amazon Prime to your house. And a veteran of the IT administration for 15 years is telling you that he used it for a week as a replacement to his office workstation. Oh, and by the way, they still continue to refine that distro and the upgrade process, to the point that it's silky smooth for most users. But that's not even the best part. That's not even the best part of Fedora 26. And it's, it's actually, we're running towards the bottom of the hour. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to get to dig into this as deep as I wanted to but My favorite part of Fedora 26 is Fleet Commander. And I feel like I should have a really cool reverb effect when I say that. But if you haven't gotten, if you haven't heard of Fleet Commander, and we'll have a link in the show notes. But oh my gosh, this is amazing. Now full disclosure, I have not used this in production yet, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But boy, oh boy, am I ready to use Fleet Commander in production. Again, phone lines 1855 450 4506624 live at asknoahshow.com. You get a couple minutes if you want to try and sneak a call in there. Basically Fleet Commander is an application that allows you to manage the desktop configuration of network users and laptops and workstations uh you know on on a network it is primarily geared towards a gnome desktop but there are two components the first is the cockpit plugin that serves as the administration interface now if you're not familiar with what cockpit is cockpit is that it is that um, server administration tool that's web based ships with fedora but works on a number of different uh, distros uh very soon uh, we are testing it right now in in this room that we call the sandbox at ultra speed the sandbox is kind of this room where we have uh switches and routers and and computers and stuff and basically it's just any time we want to try something how is this going to work in production well let's simulate it in the sandbox and see if we're ready for production we're actually going to if it, if everything keeps going the way it has been going in the sandbox we're going to roll uh cockpit out on all of our actual production servers but it requires a plugin for cockpit and then there's a client daemon that runs on every host of the network and, um, you know, interestingly enough, I've been, I've been so in love with libvirt lately, but this fleet commander actually relies on libvirt and KVM to generate the data, uh, for, for the VMs r- running in the environment is the rest of the network. And so basically you install this system. And what you can do then is you can create these templates for uh, these machines, these configuration templates and, um, i i believe is they call profiles i think and and then once you have these uh once you have these profile templates uh vm templates built then you can spin up uh these machines and have them take this this templated data and you know if you picture this in a, in a large scale system right so we have clients that um they have a number of different servers serve a number of different tasks but um we can scale infrastructure up or down based on their needs dynamically because I can tell it, Hey, this is a machine that I need to have this particular configuration. This, the, these kinds of machines, I need this particular configuration. So, oh, well, you know, the web server is running a little lower. It's getting a lot of traffic or whatever. And let's put a load balancer up and spin a couple more up. The ability to, 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 to manage that stuff at a network level, um, really seems to be next level. And one of the things that Chris and I, Chris, Luke and I were talking about is, you know, up until we had things, um, you know, like RASDC DC that allowed us to emulate a lot of the stuff that Windows had on domain controllers, Windows kinda had a had a leg up on on easy administration because the group policy management on windows is actually stupid simple like any idiot can figure that out and to get those you can do the same thing on linux don't get me wrong you know if you do ldap and, and kerberos and some other things you can get central authentication you can you can set all that stuff up but you do it's like you're you're putting every piece in place by hand where whereas with windows you're literally clicking a button and then you add you know these particular machines to your you know your system and then all, all of a sudden it just works so this 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 centrally managed type system thing is is something that you know especially at ease of use is something that has not readily been seen in the Linux world and things like Fleet Commander are changing that from the ground up because now you have the ability to just I mean it's literally two DNF commands you install the you install the uh, the plugin on Cockpit you install the daemon start the daemon up you're you're up and running and then the whole thing can be managed from Cockpit on a Fedora server CentOS server Red Hat server whatever you want or Ubuntu server it doesn't matter. Um, but you can actually, you can actually spin this stuff up and you can, you, you can control all this stuff from a central portal. It's all web based. So it's really something that I, I think is really cool. And we're going to keep our eyes on it. And again, full disclaimer, have not used this in production. Played with it in a VM a little bit while I'm out here at the campground on vacation. But I'm going to dig into it, you know, a lot further. And we're going to, after we get the, if we decide to go forward with cockpit and then the next thing we'll probably be testing, it'll probably be this fleet commander. And uh, we'll set that up in the sandbox and, and let that run for a little bit and see and bang on it and see if we can make it break. Hey, guys, do you have a question? It couldn't make it into the show. We have the answer for you, AskNoahShow.com. That's the AskNoah dashboard. You can head over there to that website, click on the contact link, and we'll make sure to answer those questions at the bottom of the hour if we have some time for it. Andrew writes in, and he asks, Hi, Noah, question for the show. Why do all the main players in the market ship their GNU-slash-Linux distributions without any major modifications or tweaks in the desktop environment? I.e. Fedora, plain GNOME 3, Kubuntu, plain KDE, etc.? We can both agree that KDE and GNOME 3, without any extra extensions, tweaking, or changing settings, are very difficult to use. You need to invest your time to make it more easy to use, and personally, I have the impression that only Unity and Cinnamon are the usable desktop environments out of the box. Why don't they personalize their own products a little bit like, let's say, Manjaro i3 or KDE is a great example. Custom themes, icons, etc. Going further... New Ubuntu will be shipped with plain GNOME 3. I'm wondering if there's any reason behind that. P.S. Love your show. Keep up the good works, Andrew. Well, um, I agree with you. I agree with just about everything you wrote in that email. Um, I want to start out and uh, point out Mr. Martin Wimper's, because Wimpy is shipping the Ubuntu Mate project, and from what I've seen, it is anything but stock. Everything is tweaked to perfection. Now, Wimpy actually works for Canonical. So, hopefully, a lot of the same passion and ideas that he had for Ubuntu Mate will make their way into the next iterations of Ubuntu. We have it on good authority that uh, Canonical will actually be tweaking some of the things that Ubuntu, uh, it, or uh, Canonical will tweak some of the things that GNOME is doing to make it more um, friendly. And of course, you have System 76, which is heavily, heavily tweaking, you know, at Ubuntu base with GNOME 3 so heavily tweaked that they're not even calling it Ubuntu. Um, Or at least that's the plan. So I think you are starting to see uh, the the tide change a little bit. I agree with you 100%. I think Gnome out of the box is completely useless. I think Unity was useful out of the box. I haven't played a lot with Cinnamon, Um so I, I guess I can't comment to that, but I will tell you that I think that Ubuntu Mate is completely usable out of the box. I rarely have ever changed anything on Ubuntu Mate. In fact, I have three Ubuntu Mate, two Ubuntu Mate boxes running in production right now. That power this very show, the Ask Noah show, both of them are running stock right out of the box. I haven't made a change to them. By the way, if you're running GNOME 3 and you'd like to know how to tweak your GNOME 3 desktop to eke the most amount of performance out of it and uh, make it look the best, uh, check out AskNoahShow.com. Take a look at one of our past episodes. We actually did an episode on tweaking the Gnome 3 desktop got one last question. Alex writes in and asks, hi, no, I'm a young university professor and have been listening to last unplugged for a long time. I switched hundred percent to Linux two years ago and my whole workflow and to open source software. Now that I'm getting a PhD students and have funding to buy a Linux laptop, I think it's, I will try to switch my whole research group to Linux. And as we're running out of time, I'm going, to summa, uh, I'm going to summarize the rest of his email. Basically, he's asking the best way to switch his students to Linux. Um, what I would say is, you know, lead by example. You switch yourself to Linux. You, um, give all of your assignments, maybe produce all of your class syllabus in something like uh, ODF. The thing is, I've never really had a, you know, if, if a professor hands out a you know, a syllabus and says, here's, a, here's the electronic syllabus, it's an ODF, but by the way, you can download the software for free. There's really no penalty, even if a student starts out with, you know, a Mac laptop and Microsoft Office. It's fine. You can go download LibreOffice to open that document if it doesn't open up in Microsoft Office, and maybe ask those students to submit their their projects in ODF. Start at that level where you're not necessarily changing out the operating system. You're just changing out the tools on top. And then over time, you can move them over to, you know, specific tools, you know, if that's, if that's a direction they want to go. Or maybe, you know, you have like an after class thing. You say, well, you know, Thursdays after, after class, I'm going to hang around here for an hour. And if anyone wants to learn about this other operating system, you know, we could do that. And I actually worked with a group of students that did something very similar in Grand Forks. So I'll have to check in with them and see how it's going. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. A huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, Ben, our producer, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks.